This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Do your investments align with your values? Well, now is the time to increase your triple bottom line to better people, profit, and the planet. Amalgamated Investment Services, a division of America's socially responsible bank, has a deep-seated commitment to affecting systemic change through investments. By specializing in triple bottom line impact, they can help navigate the common hurdles experienced by nonprofit organizations and foundations, from creating a sustainable policy statement to avoiding the all-too-prevalent greenwashing. If you'd like to join them in creating a more just and sustainable world, please visit amalgamatedbank.com slash nonprofitinvesting. Securities offered through Infinex Investments Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Amalgamated Investment Services is a trade name of Amalgamated Bank. Infinex and Amalgamated Bank are not affiliated. As a leader of a nonprofit, you know firsthand how important it is to have the right technology, tools, and strategies in place to achieve your mission. Well, that's where Heller Consulting comes in. Heller Consulting is a premier consulting firm that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations achieve their goals through effective technology strategy and implementation. Whether you need help with technology roadmaps, CRM strategy, Salesforce, or Microsoft implementations, Team Heller has you covered. With Heller Consulting on your side, you can trust that you'll have the support you need to make the most of your organization's technology resources. Visit teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Again, that's teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Hello, friends. Well, I hope you're having a great week. Thanks for tuning in today. Well, I wanted to pass on, first of all, an exciting announcement. Coming up next month, I'm personally inviting five top leaders in the nonprofit sector to talk all about the state of nonprofits today. From trend lines in giving to what are the biggest challenges facing the nonprofit sector today. You will not want to miss this special panel discussion with leaders that have collectively years and years of experience leading successful nonprofits. So keep an eye out that for more information to come, and I'll let you know uh, as we get closer to the date. Okay, on to today's show. Character and virtue. You know, in the cacophony of conversations around leadership, two topics that are not talked about as much as they used to be are character and virtue. In fact, author David Brooks points this out in an article he wrote for the New York Times. It was entitled, What Our Words Tell Us. Now, this was written 10 years ago, but it's just as relevant to today. He points out this, that the language of virtue has dissipated over time and has been replaced by the language of individualism. So when it comes to leadership in all sectors, the intersection of leadership and virtue of character and leadership is eroding. Yet we all intuitively know that character and leadership is absolutely critical, right? To effective leadership. Well, my guest today has focused much of his academic research career around the topics of virtue and character, particularly as it impacts leadership. My guest today is Michael Lamb. He is the chair of leadership and character and an associate professor at Wake Forest University. In our conversation today, we discuss not only the importance of character and virtue in the life of a leader, but also hear about seven strategies 
for character cultivation. Enjoy today's show. Well, thanks, Michael, so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Rob. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, really glad to have you on the show. And this podcast, as you know, is dedicated to leadership. And it's been my hope from the beginning of this podcast to provide my listeners with great leaders just like yourself who can really share their insights into a particular aspect of leadership or simply how to become a better leader. Because I think that's what I get feedback from on my listeners is they want to be a, a better leader and they want to be the best leader possible for their organization that they lead. And today I want to focus on the issues of character and virtue, in particular, how they relate to leaders and how they impact leaders. This is one of your specialties, and that's why I think it's just a great opportunity to really dive into those topics that is not talked about too often, I feel like. And so maybe just to start with, let's start with how you would define character and virtue and how do they impact leadership. So I understand character broadly as the set of habits, dispositions, or traits that help us to think, feel, and act wisely and well across time and circumstances. So Good habits of character will be called virtues that help us to think, uh, feel, and act in the right ways at the right times and ways that help us flourish as individuals and in communities. And bad habits would be called vices that cause us to act for the wrong reasons or in the wrong ways and therefore diminish our flourishing. So I think we need leaders with these virtues of character that can enable them and their communities to flourish. So they'll need humility to recognize the limits of their knowledge and seek the help of others. Empathy to inhabit others' perspectives and inquire into how others might be different or be thinking differently. Justice, treat others fairly and give them their due, whether that be respect or recognition or certain opportunities. Uh, courage, do the hard thing when it's really difficult, as well as wisdom to understand the complexity of situations and make good decisions in light of that complexity. So I do think these virtues are crucial to leadership, uh, but often are ignored. And I think for those of us who are, are aspiring to be leaders, Character is very important for another reason, too, and it's that, that trust is the currency of leadership. Research shows that the best leaders are those who are trusted and who can trust their followers in, in their engagement in a common project. And so research also shows that the two components of trust are competence and character. We trust those who can do things well with competence and those who are of good character, who can treat us honestly and fairly and with integrity. And so if we care about being trusted and inspiring trust in others, I think character is essential to leadership. No, I agree with you. And, you know, it's interesting. Oftentimes when it comes to leadership development, we do live in this instant coffee microwave culture that abhors waiting for things. And I think what happens when it comes to leadership, uh, this can often lead leaders to seek quick fixes. Maybe if they find there's a leadership flaw or just a shortfall in their own leadership development. What have you seen when it comes to the most common quick fixes that at best don't work or at worst, create bigger problems and perhaps even erode one's character and then therefore the trust that the organization has in that leader? You know, I think many people think that um, character can be developed and good leadership learned by reading one book or attending one leadership training or putting a set of virtues on the wall and that we might act sort of with character if we have those things in our lives. I do think those can be helpful ways to learn about character and leadership and even remind us of their importance. Research shows that moral reminders uh, in our lives can help sort of call to mind things we've committed to and be more intentional about living out those values. But just putting some on the wall won't be enough to actually cultivate character. So we actually need to do the hard work of habituating these virtues over time and with a lot of practice and attention. And so I do think we have to do more to create context in our own workplaces, in our schools, in our, in our personal life to encourage the kinds of friendships and cultures that nurture meaningful practice 
we inhabit and um, perhaps express our character. Um, character cannot be hacked. And if we assume that it can be, then won't do the hard work needed to cultivate those virtues and create cultures and institutions that can support and sustain them. Being in the nonprofit space, one of the biggest questions I get is about grant funding. Nonprofit leaders know that grants can be a very important part of their overall revenue, but knowing how to write grants well and where to find them can leave many of us overwhelmed. Well, it's a good thing my friend Holly Rustic at Grant Writing and Funding creates ways to make grant writing simple and achievable. Well, here's the good news. She is offering you, my listener, a free grant writing class. And of course, she also has her own podcast, Grant Writing and Funding. So I encourage you to visit grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob for the free grant writing class and find out more about Grant Writing and Funding podcast. Once again, that's grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob. I like that. Character cannot be hacked. That's a great comment. That's a good quote, actually. I'll make sure I'll just uh, cite you on that. Um, now, you speaking of citing, you have cited a recent study from the Higher Education Research Institute at UCLA, which surveyed around 20,000 faculty. And, and out of those surveyed, about 85% of them, I understand, identified shaping students' character as important to their role. So on the one hand, that's encouraging uh, that leaders and teachers at universities are taking this so seriously. But additionally, um, you teach a course actually called Commencing Character for Freshmen. So let's talk a little bit more about that. What is the role of a teacher in shaping a student's character? And why is this important topic so important for you? And why do you think universities should take a role on this? Well, we're now in the season of commencement speeches. And so we'll hear a lot of speeches the next month or so about uh, various virtues and values. And what's striking about commencement speeches is that many of them focus on how we ought to live. Um, but often these happen the very last day of a university education, not the very first day. And so the course I teach at Wake Forest is uh, from the very first semester, um, how do we think about commencement speeches as one source of reflection on virtues. And so students read ancient philosophy and psychology about character. They practice different ways of, of being virtuous. And then their final assignment is to actually give their own commencement speech about their vision of a good life. And so it really helps them take what they're learning and apply it to their own life in a very personal and meaningful way. And these, these speeches are really beautiful and often very vulnerable. And I think it really shows how students are hungry for this kind of reflection and meaning in their life. And so I've been very encouraged by that course as a, as a real sign of the ways in which students now are really seeking to live a meaningful life and make an impact in the world. And I think that's one reason why character is so important for universities. You know, we really focus in our work on helping to equip young people to navigate very complex situations, to go on to be citizens and leaders, to be professionals in different fields. And character can be very important for all those roles they might play beyond their time in college or university. So I think it's very important for that reason. Uh, moreover, we care about our students not only uh, doing work, but doing ethical work, uh, actually being honest in their assignments, not cheating on exams, not plagiarizing, or perhaps using chat GBT in ways that might be deceptive or, or dishonest. And so CARES can also promote ac academic integrity and excellence, and it can help us support other goals we have as universities. So at Wake Forest, for example, our motto is pro humanitate, which in, in Latin means for humanity, which calls us to think about the qualities of humanity in ourselves and others that we can actually develop to sort of support the whole humanity of our world. And so character is a very important part of that institutional mission. And it also helps promote other values we care about as universities and communities. So um, there's been a lot at work across our country and to think about the ways in which we ought to help create more just and equitable communities. And I think 
we need good character to do that. We need humility to understand our limits and our biases. We need empathy to understand other people's perspectives and justice to really ensure that we have fairness across those communities. And so I do think these uh, um, important goals can be enhanced and expanded with a real attention to character as part of higher education. Now, you've been in the academic world for a while. Do you feel like the emphasis on building character in your students is growing or is it about the same as it was, say, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, or is it changing? Tell me about that. What's the trend line, if you will? Yeah, I think it's very encouraging to see the trend line. There have been a lot of work in the last 20 years or so on character in K-12 education, but very little has been done in higher education until recently. And there have been a series of movements in the last 10 years or so where more universities are taking up the sort of charge of character education in various ways. There have been more research done on it in academic fields, and new grants are offered by foundations to support character development in different contexts. At Wake Forest, we've received uh, grants from various foundations, from the Kern Foundation, the Lilly Endowment, and the John Templeton Foundation, among others, to support this work in our own context. And we just received a major grant this year, uh, $30 million, to actually provide grants and support to other universities and colleges around the country to develop their own character programs in their own context. And so there's a real, I think, a hunger for it now, and also the capacity to do this work in ways that can be really impactful for the future of American higher education. What I found is interesting is that organizations that really value character as a key part of their corporate culture, now again, I'm speaking mostly of nonprofits, but this is across the board, businesses, universities, et cetera. So if you value character as a key part of your corporate culture, they actually do better as companies and as organizations in terms of bottom line revenue and overall results. So it's interesting, in short, a a culture of good character actually improves an organization's bottom line. In fact, I think you've referenced this before. There's a book out there by Fred Kyle, uh, return on character. And it points to this exact scenario of companies and organizations who value character. And so maybe you can speak to that. Why does this issue of importance of character seem to be absent in many of our conversations around leadership? And yet it's proven to really make a difference in both businesses on the one hand and nonprofit organizations on the other. Yeah, I think people worry that if you focus on character or doing the right thing, it might not lead to the profits that you might otherwise achieve or that that it's kind of against efficiency as a kind of primary currency of of business models. But I do think the research shows that actually it's the opposite. So I think that we, the assumption that business and, and personal life are separate can often crowd out character in ways that's not always helpful. I also think that many organizations value ethics, but tend to reduce ethics to compliance, to a code of conduct or to the law. And compliance is very important. We need people who are compliant with basic laws and moral standards. But compliance itself is a very minimal threshold for moral action, and it's often very silent on complex moral questions that can't be captured in a generalizable law or code. And so character is a much more aspirational and holistic standard. It requires us to go beyond just the minimal thresholds and gives us guidance on how to act in very complex situations when the rules might not be sort of speaking to us. And so I do think that if we can go beyond ethics as compliance model, um, we can also think about character being something that all of us have responsibility for. Um, often, companies and others will outsource ethics to their compliance officers or their lawyers and think they have no responsibility to be ethical themselves. If it's approved by the compliance office, then it's okay. I think character calls us to be a little bit different. We actually, we actually have to be responsible ourselves, not just to outsource it to other people. So I think there are ways in which um, certain assumptions about corporate culture and what ethics is might shape this trend. And also, I think that we have certain biases and blind spots. And we often think, as researchers show, that we are better than we actually are. And we're not aware of our own biases or blind spots. And therefore, when we're making hard decisions, 
the ethical parts of those decisions might fade away. It's called ethical fading in the literature, where when we focus on a hard decision, we might forget the ethical implications of that because we're focused on making a good business decision or a good decision that that might actually achieve a certain outcome for us. And so I think hmm. if we're able to be reminded of the importance of ethics and be tuned to the way that character might show up for us, we can help to make more ethical decisions across the entire leadership experience and not just uh, outsourcing to our compliance officers. I think it's a really good point. And, and then in this uh, conversation, I, I remember reading and ran across David Brooks had a New York Times article called What Our Words Tell Us. And I thought this was really fascinating. And I know you're aware of it. And I wonder if my listeners are. But basically, uh, there's he analyzed Google engrams, which tracks language use over time, essentially. Uh, they found that the language of virtue has actually dissipated over time and has been replaced by the language of individualism, of commerce, of domination. And that's really fascinating to me that number one, that Google can track that, uh, but also that there's this trend line uh, away from words of virtue and, and using uh, virtuous terms. So as here you are emphasizing the importance of virtue and character, which seem to be really important to nonprofit leaders and to nonprofit organizations, let alone businesses, but it's going against the grain of culture. Uh, it seems like that's not where our culture is headed. So what have you found in terms of pushback with your emphasis on these qualities? I mean, you're teaching at a university, you're speaking a lot, you're writing books. I mean, tell us more about uh, what kind of pushback have you received and are people uh, poo-pooing a bit of what you're coming up with? You know, I think um, what I would say is that we tend to value as a culture right now, celebrity and fame and status as uh, markers of leadership. Yep. Yep. And I think that's a real challenge to us. Um, but what I also see is that there's beginning to be a pushback against that model of leadership. And so what I've found is that rather than pushing back against character, many people are embracing it very fully. I think there's a hunger among students, among parents, among faculty and professionals, because people see the conspicuous absence of character. Richard Reeves, uh, who's written about character, said that character, it, like oxygen, is most notable when it's absent, when it's missing. Mm. And I think that we see it missing now, and therefore we want it more. And so I think there's a real, real kind of move toward embracing character as an important component of leadership and of life. And when we have received pushback, it's because people might worry that we are imposing values on other people or denying their individual freedom or autonomy. And that's not our approach, for example, at Wake Forest. We really want to empower people to think about their own deepest values, their own commitments, and then support them in their own journey toward their, their ideals. I think often the concern comes from thinking about character or virtue in the abstract where it's this old-fashioned term and it, it can be used or weaponized in ways that might push an agenda or that might um, be problematic. And so we really try to sort of avoid those discussions and focus more on particular virtues of character. When you talk about, for example, importance of humility or courage or empathy or justice, everyone agrees those are important virtues for us. We want our friends and our partners and our colleagues and our students to be honest and kind and courageous. Uh, and empathetic. And so I do believe, though, we, if we can move beyond the abstract and focus on particular virtues, we can find much more common ground uh, in recognizing the importance of character for good leadership. We'll be right back. Do you want a clear step-by-step -step system to write grants so that your nonprofit secures funding in a stress-free manner? Well, check out the free grant writing class, How to Write Winning Grants in Seven Proven Steps. You'll we'll walk away with seven nuggets of grant writing clarity and a free action workbook so you can start writing higher quality grants today. Just watch this free class now at grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob. Again, that's grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob. Do your investments align with your values? 
Well, now's the time to increase your triple bottom line to better people, profit, and the planet. Amalgamated Investment Services, a division of America's socially responsible bank, has a deep-seated commitment to affecting systemic change through investments. By specializing in triple bottom line impact, they can help navigate the common hurdles experienced by nonprofit organizations and foundations. From creating a sustainable policy statement to avoiding the all-too-prevalent greenwashing. If you would like to join them in creating a more just and sustainable world, please visit amalgamatedbank.com slash nonprofit investing. Again, that's amalgamatedbank.com slash nonprofit investing. Securities offered through Infinix Investments Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Amalgamated Investment Services is a trade name of Amalgamated Bank. Infinex and Amalgamated Bank are not affiliated. As a leader of a nonprofit, you know firsthand how important it is to have the right technology, tools, and strategies in place to achieve your mission. Well, that's where Heller Consulting comes in. Heller Consulting is a premier consulting firm that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations achieve their goals through effective technology strategy and implementation. Whether you need help with technology roadmaps, CRM strategy, Salesforce, or Microsoft implementations, Team Heller has you covered. With Heller Consulting on your side, you can trust that you'll have the support you need to make the most of your organization's technology resources. Visit teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Again, that's teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. I really like that. You know, I think what I'm hearing you say then is if we stay away from kind of um, either being pre- too prescriptive and or tie the conversation of character and virtue around maybe a particular uh, religious point of view or a moral point of view, and we talk more generally about it and how it impacts leadership, then there's less pushback. Is that what you found so far? Well, I think that's that's true in one sense. We want to be able to find common ground about why different virtues might matter in ways that that can sort of somehow be shared across different traditions and backgrounds. Okay. But I think we also also very important to recognize that we we're not blank slates either. We bring our own formation to bear in 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 our in our work, in our life, in our communities. And so um rather than sort of asking us to check those commitments at the door, we actually want to invite them in and say we, we are formed and we recognize that that we are people who are part of traditions and cultures including, you know, American culture, uh whether that's positive or negative. And we need to think about how we can get critical scrutiny on our own formation. So the key, key aspect is to be critical about that. So we actually can then think about how we're being shaped and formed and then change our institutions to make sure we're forming people in the right ways. And so I think that's critical, being both open to sharing and finding common ground, but not denying how we've already been formed in the process. Well said. And one other thought on that, the trend line going down in terms of uh, the conversation around virtue actually coming out of our language, according to Google anyway. Why do you think that is? Uh, do, you, do you, in your research, have you found reasons why virtue is just not talked about as much as it used to be? Well, I think virtue itself can be, can seem like an old fashioned term. It can seem like an antiquated term. And it does have a bit of a troubled legacy in how it's been used times to sort of, um, to put people in their place, for example, or to sort of promote certain ways of being over others. And so we have to be careful about that. So I think there are good reasons why we might be hesitant about certain words like, like virtue. At the same time, I think that it has been used by many different kinds of thinkers from feminist scholars and others who really sort of reclaimed and re-signified virtue to speak to those qualities of character that we need to live well. So I do think that as we think about our current 
current world, I think the language of virtue might have slipped out. But I do wonder then, and I haven't done this research yet, but has humility fallen out of view or courage or justice? I would bet justice has increased in, uh, in, its, in its sort of use across time. Uh, I will also wonder about empathy or gratitude or other virtues. So again, if we shift away from just abstract ideas of what virtue or character is and think about particular virtues, I would wonder if those trends uh, might be different or not. Uh, that's a really good question. There, yeah, we had to go back to David Brooks, I guess, and ask him what he found in that. Well, one of my guests previously on the show talked about the importance of attitude, actions, and accountability for every leader. I'll say that again. So there's kind of a, um, a trifold impact with leadership. And she talked about attitude, actions, and accountability, and how if you have the right attitude, and that follows with correct actions, and then you're able to provide more accountability for your team, that often is a good combination for success as a leader. Uh, what do you think of these key traits? And do you agree? And then are there any other traits you would say are key ingredients to good leadership, particularly in this context of having good virtue and good character? Yeah, I think attitudes, actions, and accountability are really important. And I think I would just add, I think that is specifying what kinds of attitudes and what kinds of action and what kind of accountability is crucial. So I think it's easy to say there's are categories we need in good leaders, but attitude can be positive or negative. Actions can be moral or immoral. And so I do think that the tendency to think about these as categories of a leader is crucial, but we need to think about ways in which we flesh them out and direct them towards certain purposes and in certain ways. I think that's where the virtues can really come in handy. So if we think about attitude and action, for example, we need empathetic attitude and action, not indifferent or cruel attitude and action, right? Or we need humble attitude and action to be able to learn from others and welcome different perspectives into our conversation, not arrogant attitude and action. So I think that uh, in many ways, the virtues can play a kind of adverbial role in helping us sort of direct our actions and attitudes in the right ways at the right times and therefore help us have the kind of accountability we need to ensure we're acting well. I also think accountability is not only a personal practice we need to encourage, but also should be a, a cultural one. We need to have institutions that have robust cultures of accountability. Yeah. But in, anytime power is being exercised and responsibility is being wielded uh, with authority, we need also to ensure that it's held accountable and is being a, sort of used in the right ways and affecting people in ways that is meant to be to be used. And so I think accountability is very important for that. And we need both self-accountability and cultural accountability to ensure that different ways of acting might be constrained when they might overreach or, or be problematic. Well put. Well, for my listeners, again, uh, before you came to Wake Forest, you were at Oxford. And during that time at Oxford, you started doing some research, but then you continued at Wake Forest as what has become now seven strategies for character cultivation. Maybe we could spend some more time on that. Give us those seven strategies. What do they entail? Yeah, we, we found that doing research in philosophy and education and sociology and even neuroscience has revealed various strategies that have been effective for forming character. We've found seven of them across the literature. And the first is habituation through practice. We learn virtue like we learn skills by practicing it over and over until we kind of make it second nature in our responses. We also reflect on personal experience. Number two, we often learn to be virtuous by thinking about what we did right, what we did wrong. How can we change going forward as we think about that particular trait of character? Uh, third, we often engage moral exemplars or role models, people who embody particular virtues, be it historical exemplars like uh, famous leaders from history or people in our own life, a uh, coach or a parent, a uh, friend who might embody honesty or humility or care. And so we found in, in the research that thinking about those exemplars trying to imitate them in various ways really helps us actually acquire 
important virtues of character. Also, number four, we learn virtue by talking about what virtue is and understanding its complexities. If we think that, for example, hope and optimism are the same thing, we might be optimistic in times when we might not be warranted in being optimistic, but we might be hopeful without being optimistic. So knowing that difference between hope and optimism can help us think about nuances in ways we might pursue or enact our virtues. And number five, we need to be aware of our own biases and blind spots. We all are aware of ways in which we have been formed and shaped by culture, race, gender, politics. Uh, and so being aware of the ways in which our judgments are always being shaped and how our, even our perception might be blind to certain ways of being in the world helps us begin to correct those uh, biases and respond with much more justice and empathy toward others who might be different uh, from us. Um, six, uh, moral reminders, things that help, help us remember the importance of our commitments. So for example, on a college campus, the honor code, in addition to being a set of rules for you know, academic integrity, also is a moral reminder. When we sign our honor code after an exam or on a test, we're reminded that we actually committed to being people of honor and integrity. So it reminds us to show up in that way, uh, in that context. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, we don't cultivate character in isolation. We cultivate it among colleagues and friends. And so we need friendships of accountability to help us think about what we did right, to hold us accountable when we go wrong, and to offer support and encouragement as we pursue our own journey of character. So I think these seven strategies have often been pretty obvious strategies and the kind of ordinary strategies, but it can be quite effective in helping to promote character. We found at Wake Forest, for example, that these strategies in the classroom actually do change the character of students in dramatic ways. And we've got done research now showing that in the course I teach, you mentioned commencing character over 16 weeks, students develop seven virtues compared to control group uh, over that course. So we, they actually do work. And I think we, there are ways for us to integrate them pretty easily into our ordinary leadership contexts and cultures. I like those seven. Um, let's dive into a couple of them. The first one you listed was habituation through practice. So my, for my listeners, again, most of them are nonprofit leaders, you know, dealing with all kinds of issues every day, challenges. And so this idea of over and over having a habituation in their practice of these virtues is really important. But maybe you could start with what's one habitual practice to enhance their character that you would say is one of the most important ones? Is there one you would say, okay, try this and keep doing it over a long period of time and that's going to really help uh, your leadership and make a big impact in terms of how you lead? Well, I think there are many. And what, what the leader themselves are really trying to work on so in my class, for example, I have students choose which virtue they really want to strengthen and focus on that virtue in their work. But if you want a kind of a, a one that's been well-studied and also pretty easy to implement, I would recommend gratitude. Uh, research shows that a reflection of gratitude every day can really help to improve physical and mental health. It can increase our empathy and pro-social behavior. It can foster humility. When we recognize that other people helped us, we see that we don't do it all ourselves. And so we're more humble and more open to other people's contributions to our work. It can also help to promote resilience and get us through difficult times. And research shows to help foster hope because when we, we are grateful for things in our life that are good, we're less likely to despair about how bad things are. So I do think that gratitude when practiced regularly and made a habit can be quite effective. Um, I think in a nonprofit context in particular, we're often relying on other people to help us, donors, volunteers, our colleagues, our partners in the community. And so showing gratitude can, can also really improve relationships in ways that build partnerships and honor the credit that others are due. And so I think in that context, gratitude is not simply an individual feeling. In fact, it shouldn't just be individual. It should be also be expressed in ways that help to build those relationships and to foster better collaborations and partnerships. 
Oh, really well said. I, I like that. I emphasis on gratitude. Um, that's a good one. Okay, then another one you mentioned was this idea of having a conversation about virtue and, and the fact that in the conversation, uh, you actually can develop a little bit better understanding of various things and use the example of hope and optimism. My concern, even though I think that you're absolutely right, what I'm continuing to see happen, it feels like, and a lot of people are blaming social media for a big portion of this, but it feels like we're getting more and more into our corners and to our echo chambers. So it is getting more difficult to have conversations around virtues uh, simply because we can't have conversations in general because we are in these camps. And if we don't agree on most things, we just don't really have much dialogue. How do you kind of work against that? It feels like this pressure and culture now in our society where we're getting more and more divided. How can we come back together and talk about these very important things? Because I think that's one of the biggest things we need to work on is more conversations, particularly around virtue and character that we can agree upon, even if you don't agree with everything, but we can have a conversation about it so we can understand the nuances between these. What is your thought on that? Because I'm guessing on a university campus, you'll see a lot of that uh, polarization. Well, I do think that character is something that many of us feel is w- quite important. And if we can identify, for example, one virtue that might be shared across differences, we might be able to have a conversation about that virtue, how it shows up and how it might be different for each of us. I think it's also important to really start with personal stories. It's really hard to demonize someone who is sharing a personal story about how a virtue like humility or courage might have shown up in their life. And so I think the more that we can personalize these conversations and recognize that we are each formed in different ways and they're therefore might express courage or justice differently. It helps us kind of find a way in which we might sort of sort of yearn toward sort of common agreement on how we might live going forward. I also think it's very important, and this work on on St. Augustine I've done shows that um, in addition to identifying our sort of our common loves, it's also good to identify things that we want to resist or refuse. And often we think about how we sort of find progress in life. Anthony Appiah, for example, has shown in the honor code his book on moral movements, that often movements happen because People agree not on what they want, but actually what they want to resist. So racism, for example, or injustice, and we can often find agreement on what we want to resist and therefore build a coalition that across difference helps us achieve important goods based on those kind of common bads. So I do think there are ways in which our, our culture can sort of move beyond these divisions if we can think about uh, the real listening required to understand people's differences and find sort of routes of conversation that can help us move toward common goods. I really like that. And, and one last one maybe we could look at for today, and I encourage you to get my listeners to check this out with his work, but you mentioned exemplars or people that you look up to. Uh, I'm curious for you, like who has been uh, an example of virtuous leadership that you've followed and has impacted you? You know, there, there are many. And what research shows, Rob, is that often those impactful exemplars are relevant and attainable exemplars, not just heroes in the past or people who are kind of very high above us, but those in our own life who in some way show us what virtue looks like. And so for me, uh, my parents have been very important virtue, sort of exemplars of virtue for me. My, my dad um, has really shown me what it means to, to sacrifice for others and to be committed to following through. My mother is a real exemplar of compassion. And in her whole life, she's been someone who's always tried to help others and taught us to help other people. Uh, in her very first word to me in my baby book, when I was uh, one day old, she wrote, you know, dear Michael, I want you to be a kind and compassionate person. A forgiving person helps those who are less fortunate than yourself. So her vision for me from our very first day was to be a person of compassion. And, and I've had great teachers too. I think we often underestimate how we can be exemplars for many people around us, even if we don't realize it. And many of my teachers and friends have been wonderful exemplars to me in ways that 
continue to inspire me and challenge me and help me grow. And I think that's one of the great joys of this work is that if you do it in community, you're exposed always to people who can challenge you and help you grow. And that's one of the great joys of being uh, in a context of university where that is our purpose and the joy of the work is being able to do that work every day. Love that. What a great example of your parents. And I uh, love, it's always nice that you've had teachers yourself and now you're, you're doing a, uh, just flip it around now as a teacher and impacting so many students. So I have a feeling my listeners will want to connect with you. How can they do that? What's the best way for them to connect with you and learn a little bit more about what you do there at Wake Forest? Well, thank you, Rob. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. I'm, I'm delighted to be part of this. And if listeners want to learn more, they can go to my website, kmichaellam.com, where I include a lot of my work, including articles and books, uh, including a book called Cultivating Virtue in the University about how universities can cultivate virtue. And more recently, a book called A Commonwealth of Hope, which explores Augustine's virtue of hope and its relevance for contemporary politics. So very grateful. It's some great people who've been able to sort of support my work over the years. That's great. Well, again, well, Michael, thank you so much for just taking time to share a bit of your insights and your research. And thanks for all you're doing to help us all become better leaders. Thank you, Rob. Hey, friends. Well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community. Find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.